Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and as always, I am joined by Andrew Rushby and Hugh Osborne. In this episode, we are asking the question, do all planets orbit stars? Simple question, simple answer. I'm going to throw us straight over to Hugh, who is our discovery expert, to kick us off. Yeah, simple answer maybe, but I think that there's definitely some discussion to get into here. But I thought I'd give us a little background of what we know about planets with and without stars, right? Because uh, the vast majority of exoplanets that we have found so far have been found orbiting stars, of course. But there are a few things in the archive, a few objects. I won't say planet yet. (laughs) (laughs) Planetary mass objects which have been found floating alone, isolated through space, which is kind of the interesting thing that I think we're going to get into talking about is these free-floating planetary mass objects, right? So there are a couple of techniques that have been able to find these free-floating planets, and and the most prolific method is probably microlensing. So microlensing is a way, basically, of being able to find concentrated mass without ever seeing photons or light from the surface of that object. Because occasionally, if a massive object passes in front of a background star, often this happens in in the centre of the Milky Way galaxy, where we have a lot of background stars to, to look at, at that mass is actually able to lens the light of the the background star and that lensing effect means that it, there is amplification of the, the light from the background star and you're able to tell something about the size of the object that is causing that gravitational bending. So essentially we've got this invisible, we're never going to be able to detect it in any way from visual light or even in the infrared object that is sitting in our line of sight of some distant distant star is that right yes exactly yeah and even you know this this technique is is used to find stars with planets orbiting them it's used to find brown dwarfs and even in those cases we don't see the light from those objects because they're so far away and so dim but but especially in the case where it's a planetary sized body because they are inherently so faint so basically, MOA and Ogle and even Spitzer and K2 have done these microlensing surveys and, and stared at the centre of the Milky Way galaxy for a long time and been able to detect these short blips where a very small object amplifies the light of a background star. And, this, and, and these very short duration blips are due to free-floating planets. Although initially, back in 2011, when there was one year of data from the MOA survey, they found a huge bump in what they thought was an excess of free-floating giant planets. And back then, this was a big deal, and people weren't expecting this. And, and there was lots of papers uh, published about why all these giant planets, where there was more than one giant planet per star, they suggested, oh, wow. uh, where these came from. Well, it turned out they weren't real. <laughs> there was a systematic issue with the data. And the same data, combined with other surveys in 2015, found that there was no excess of these free-floating giant planets. And they only found an upper limit basically saying that there are less than 0.25 of these free-floating giant planets per star. Even though, you know, these planets don't actually have a star, they're saying in pure number density, in pure yes. kind of number statistics, there's about a quarter? Well, there's at least four times more stars than there are giant planets, basically. Right. Yeah. That was only an upper limit. 
But one thing they did actually find was that there was another blip in the data, which was at lower masses. So for Earth and super Earth-sized bodies, they found more of these candidates, potentially up to something like seven per star. But I think the, the error bar was seven plus or minus five. So That's, that's <laughs> so a massive error bar. Yes. <laughs> so what that's saying is that there are more stars than Jupiter-sized planets floating around in between stars, but there is potentially more, essentially, giant rocks floating around in between stars than there are, in fact, stars. Exactly, yes. And so this is it's quite interesting where there's this gap between small free-floating objects and then there's like a valley almost, which we also see in terms of around stars. We see this brown dwarf valley where there's not that many objects, you know, at 20-ish times the mass of Jupiter. And then the, the rate starts to go up again. And they see the same kind of thing in, in these microlensing surveys where small bodies like Earth and super Earth-sized planets are common and then stars are common and then there's a valley between them. Although roughly where that corresponds to is, is still open, I think. And the other technique which has been used to find these free-floating planets is just imaging them, right? This is kind of difficult when you first think about it because planetary mass objects without a star, they don't have any external heat source, right? They're, they, they are going to be inherently very faint. They should simply cool off to absolute zero over time, basically. And therefore, they'll be extremely dark. There's no light reflecting from them. There's no thermal emission from them, except extremely long wavelengths at very, very little amounts. And therefore, effectively, an old free-floating planet is impossible to spot, except, mm. as we've heard, just through the gravitational effect that they can have. But we do have a chance to spot these objects when they're young, because the process of planet formation is quite a hot process. We're talking about taking lots of material and throwing it into a gravity well, you know, that, that's going to um, create thermal energy. You know, you're effectively turning gravitational energy into thermal energy in that case. So they're emitting all of this heat then instead. So if they're, they're very young and they're very, very hot, we're seeing the heat that they're giving out, but it's not generated from fusion at the core. So it's not like a star itself. It is pure infrared thermal radiation like the Earth gives out, for example. Yeah. Or like if you heat up a, a metal, it's, it's going to glow red hot, I guess. But these planets won't be glowing red hot. They only really glow in the infrared, like a bit like the Earth and a, a bit like the, the heat you get of, of a, on a warm day from the ground, maybe. So this is why, in order to detect these free-floating planetary mass bodies, you, you need to observe in the infrared, right? If you look in the optical, you're only going to see the stars, the things that are glowing uh, much hotter temperatures. And for the cooler temperatures, like, you know, 1,000, maybe 1,500 Kelvin max for these just freshly formed planets, then you really need to go into the infrared. And so this is what some surveys have been doing for the last 20 years, actually, basically taking infrared images of star-forming clusters where we know that there are these young uh, young stars and maybe young planets in, in there. And in fact, there was the, the first candidate uh, planet mass stellar object was um, from all the way back in 2002. It was called S Ori 70, which was spotted in Orion using the WHT, the William Herschel Telescope. Although actually now it's, it's kind of been called into doubt whether it is a free-floating mm -hmm. planet within the cluster because we, all we have is, is a temperature, really, of the, um, the object. Mm -hmm. And if there was a closer brown dwarf that wasn't part of Orion, that was just happened to be passing through, it looks almost identical. So, um, so we still need more data to say if that really was the first free-floating planet that was found. But that was, uh, yeah, between four and eight Jupiter masses, if it is in Orion. And there have been other surveys since that, using, for example, Hubble, 
which have basically been able to scrape the top of the planetary mass regime. So something mm. around 10 Jupiter masses, which these bigger, the bigger the object, the longer it takes to cool, the more, uh, the more it emits, the hotter it, it is, basically. And so it's slightly easier to find these bigger things, but even Hubble, with its sensitivity, has not been able to find anything kind of with the same mass as Jupiter. We're talking about much, much larger objects. I suppose this is where I come in and say enter JWST. Yes, uh, exactly. Our big shiny infrared telescope in space that can can look for this this heat from these tiny objects. That's the game changer, yeah. Yeah, and recently we saw some news come out from Mark McCochran's programme and, and Mark was interviewed on the show in Exocast 56B talking about his role in JWST. And through his Guaranteed Observing Time program that he set up, uh, they've looked at Orion. They've looked at the trapezium cluster in Orion to try and find these small, free-floating planetary mass objects, essentially glowing from that heat of formation. You know, Orion is this... It's our nearest star-forming region. It's incredibly massive on the sky. You can see the blurry, fuzzy blob with the naked eye if you've got a good clear night and Orion's up in the winter in the northern hemisphere so go out and find it it's absolutely beautiful so looking at this they use JWST to try and survey essentially how many small red blobs there were how many tiny little kind of free-floating brown dwarfs or planetary mass objects like we were saying and that limit is you know somewhere between 13 15 Jupiter masses we don't really know but one of the, the things that they actually found from the program, which literally came out, um, you know, a few weeks ago, is that not only have they found about 400, 500 or so new planetary mass candidates, I suppose is what I'm going to call them. I think they called them just planetary mass bodies, but I'm going to still use the word candidates is that some of them were as small as fractions of Jupiter size. So in, in terms of yeah. their mass, they were 0.6, I think, was the smallest one that they found in this survey. But something else really strange that they found. And what they found was that they seem to be in pairs. So when we look at stars, the sun is kind of unique in that it sits on its own. It's, it's a lonely star. Most stars go around in pairs. They go around in binaries, two stars orbiting each other. We've seen hierarchical systems which go up to, I think there's six or eight stars that were all kind of dancing around each other in various pairs or triplets or quadruplets. And these small planetary mass bodies, these lonely planetary mass bodies seem to be doing the same thing, but doing it more than expected. In fact, almost all of them they looked at seem to be in a pair. And that is strange because that tells us something about the formation mechanism and our understanding of how these planetary mass objects formed compared to what we think from our solar system looking at planetary mass objects. Yeah, and they found a surprising number, right, as a, as a function of the number of stars. I can't remember how many per star they found, but certainly it was larger than they expected, if I recall correctly. But basically this this tells us that, you know, that there are, there must be in the universe, if this star-forming cluster is, is normal, and there's no reason to think it isn't similar to how our sun formed and how all of the stars in, in the galaxy formed, there must be a large number of these planetary mass, free-floating giant planets out there in in the universe in the in the galaxy so they must be uh, a relatively common occurrence which is kind of interesting because it doesn't exactly support what the microlensing surveys were finding 
can we just say that not all planets orbit stars? I guess that's the... <laughs> I mean, if we go straight back to, to the question, I think we can say that. We've got evidence that that is the case. But I think the main question actually is how did they get there? Did they form not orbiting a star or were they flung from a system? And the fact that this program is kind of finding that they're in pairs suggests that they formed on their own. They actually formed where they are in those groupings rather than being flung out from a system through some dynamical inter interaction in the disk whilst that planet was originally forming around the star. And those are the two really key questions because there are two main ways that we think that planets form. One is through gravitational instability. The planet forms like a star does. A clump of gas has some kind of turbulence in it, something swirls it up, which causes gravity to start contracting and bringing that gas and material together. If a planet forms like a star does under this kind of gravitational infall of material, then you can expect it, like the stars, to be in binary systems, in triple systems, in, in these kind of more clustered systems where these different materials are kind of clumping together and end up orbiting each other. And that can be at wide separations. I mean, some of these pairs that they found are separated by quite a distance from each other. So in that case, you would expect your planets to look very much like a star would. It would represent the gas in which it formed from. Now, the second option in which we think our entire solar system of planets was made is from more of what we call a bottom-up mechanism, where you end up with small dust grains of ice and, and dust clumping together. So through collisions, they start sticking. Those steadily get bigger and bigger. And through more and more collisions, they build up and up and up until you have a protoplanet. So something about the size of an asteroid or, or the moon. Then more of those collide together and start forming larger, larger planets. Once you get a core of a planet, which is about the Earth-sized, uh, is a bit too small to bring in lots of gas. But if you go all the way up to about 30 or 40 times the mass of the Earth, big, big rock, you can start to pull in the gas around you. And that's how we think something like Jupiter formed. Now that is called core accretion. You are accreting a core. Material is being gathered together into a core and then you accrete your gas, you pull your gas in. And unlike gravitational instability, it shouldn't look like the star at all because you're forming mostly from these much, much heavier solid materials or what we would call volatiles, the water, the carbon dioxide, the methane in the ice, the form of ices onto those dust grains. So you would look quite different from the amount of heavy elements we'd be able to measure in your star. And you would often be around another star. So this is forming in a protoplanetary disk is how we would normally describe it because that allows you the clumping of that kind of material, those ices and those rocks that are required to form the planet that way. But in that process, you can have lots of planets forming and they can gravitationally interact with each other and they can do so in such a violent way that one of them gets kind of flung out at a very dramatic angle from that system. And you end up with a planet that is drifting off into space for all eternity, never to find its star again. And those, you know, we likely are seeing some remnants of that, but it would be very unusual to see a pair yes. of those planets being flung out together. And then we see the evidence of them orbiting each other. So the fact that these planetary mass objects have been seen in Orion 
appear to be in groupings suggests that they formed through gravitational instability rather than core accretion. And yeah. the big question that we we have is at what point, at what distance from a star, even if you are orbiting a star, could you form from gravitational instability instead of requiring this kind of core mm. accretion that we see that is needed for terrestrial planets and we still think very much so for our giant planets. And there is a massive, massive kind of drive in the community to understand, is there a mass limit for that? Is there a distance limit? Are the directly imaged planets that are on orbits of a thousand AU formed via core accretion or gravitational instability? And the answer right now is we don't know. And this is kind of new evidence leading to the fact that you can form something so small. 0.6 Jupiter masses can be formed just from collapsing gas. And the limit previously was thought to be about three Jupiter masses. So this is really, really pushing the limits of what the theory suggests is possible. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, actually, because, I mean, we have these two competing mechanisms for forming planetary mass bodies. They could form like a star. And, and as you say, this um, this paper, it, it, these new jumbos, as they're called, Jupiter mass binary objects are really, I, I love that name, by the way. Yeah, jumbos. jumbo. This <laughs> is great, isn't it? I like the fact that they, they call it uh, Jupiter mass planetary object rather than a, just a planet, because there is still some some mm. uncertainty there, right? They didn't just go with, uh, we found all these free-floating planets. They they came up with a nice uh, middle ground of yep. Jupiter mass planetary objects. Um, but yeah, so these jumbos clearly show that this uh, gravitational instability happens down way below, you know, the, the 13 Jupiter mass limit, which is typically what we call the difference between a planet and a brown dwarf. But it, I, I think the thing for me, and we've talked about this before, is that definitionally, it's a bit weird that we just call something at 13.1 Jupiter masses a brown dwarf and something at 12.9 Jupiter masses a planet, even if they formed the same way. And I think this is something that, that we're going to get into is that, and we have got into in the past, <laughs> is that potentially the definition of planet should reflect formational differences. So planets are things that form like the Earth, that form from, from the bottom up from this core accretion method. And we know that formed all of the planets in our solar system. We know that formed almost all of the exoplanets that we found orbiting other stars, except some of these very high mass directly imaged planets. And then maybe things that formed like stars, even if they're not stellar mass, aren't planets, right? And I think that's that's a very nice way to split up the distribution because we have these overlapping distributions of you know things that high mass forming like stars things that low mass forming like planets and these overlapping region i think that is a nice argument but we don't know you said that we know that a majority of the planets yes. that we've found are formed through this core accretion we genuinely have no idea and one of the biggest things that we're trying to do right now looking at the atmospheres and characterizing what their atmospheres is made of is trying to understand that problem because the process of planet formation is incredibly complex a disk isn't just this kind of flat profile where everything's nice and static and swirling around in its circles there's vertical extent as well they extend upwards and downwards it's not just outwards from the star and that can cause changes in the chemical makeup of that portion of the disk in different ways and then if you add any turbulence or you, you start forming a planet it changes 
the boundaries of where different aspects of that disc's chemistry is. So tracing back to the formation mechanism is something really, really key we're trying to do. And we're trying to do that through measuring the amount of material of different elements in the atmospheres of these giant planets we see that have clearly migrated through their systems over time and trying to look at multi-planet systems and understanding how can we use what we're seeing in the atmospheres of these multi-planet systems to really pick apart potential formation locations or mechanisms. But genuinely, we could not tell you looking at any one of these giant planets how it formed. And we couldn't tell you that with certainty. So the definition of saying, oh, it's not a planet if it formed through gravitational instability, I think is is inaccurate because you can get those kinds of planets around stars as well. So how does the orbit of a planet around a star change your definition as well. We've got these free-floating planets. We do genuinely call them free-floating planets. It's like a completely different definition, as exoplanet is a different definition from planet. As dwarf planet is a different definition from, from gas giant, I guess. So it's just, it's a question of how and what do we need to understand? And, and does that mechanism change the nature of the object? And is it just a different part of the spectrum of worlds that we're seeing rather than being completely different objects in and of themselves? I mean, this is the core of the nomenclature argument, right? The, the IAU official definition would be that no free-floating planet is a planet because the number one is that it has to orbit a star. Well, no, number one by the IAU is that it has to orbit the sun. The sun, yeah. No, but they, they updated it for exoplanets in the last few years. Oh, they have? Okay. So. okay. I, I didn't actually find that in my in my research. I thought they had a working group put together who were looking... Yes, okay. That, I didn't well, know the, that they the, had voted on that yet. Yeah. I think exactly. it maybe ha hasn't been voted, but the criteria from the working group, but basically that's number one from, okay. from them. So that would exclude these these objects effectively from being planets, but that doesn't exclude them from being interesting. And, that, and I think it's uh, one thing that's cool to think about is like exactly what it would be like, right, to visit one of these free-floating bodies, planets, whatever. I mean, could there be moons? Could they be habitable? Well, there was a paper a few years ago by um, Raymond Pierre-Humbert, who's now at Oxford and others, right, looking at the potential ability for a, a really thick hydrogen-helium envelope to try and keep, keep a, you know, a free-floating planet slightly warm in that in that sense what above like 200 kelvin <laughs> i think and perhaps with with enough uh, of an envelope it was it was apparently possible with a bit of internally generated heat maybe some of that accretionary heat left over maybe some radionuclides uh, to keep it perhaps above about what 240 kelvin or, or something uh, in in an ideal situation so certainly interesting to think about from an astrobiological perspective in terms of their their transit around the galaxy, uh, maybe uh, from those planet-forming regions, uh, no matter how they formed. I think the mechanistic argument is a really, it's a really good one. But I think, from what I've been listening to here, it does come down to maybe a little bit of observational bias, which I guess is expected, right? Hugh started off the show saying most of the planets that we know about have been detected around a star, and that gave away the whole crux of the issue in many cases. Here is they they've been detected around a star because it's easier to do that, um, and maybe you know we we're, we're doing our best to get the population survey, the demographic survey, how likely or how many of these worlds per star might there be uh, to try and get a number on this. But I think we're always going to be slightly biased towards the things that we can detect more easily, uh, whether they be around a star or not. And it might turn out that there's a lot more free-floating planets out there 
than gravitationally bound planets or free-floating objects out there than gravitationally bound objects. Yeah, it's interesting as well. If you look at our solar system and the giant planets or the you know the, the big planets, the Saturn mm-hmm. and, and Jupiter, one of those systems is, is actually creating energy for free in one of its moons, right? The Io is being tidally heated thanks to the tidal forces between the other moons and, and Jupiter. And that's completely external from the sun, right? If, if Jupiter was free-floating through space, Io would still be warm. Mm. And so that's another way, I, I wonder, you know, because that, that tidal heating should last for billions of years. Yeah. There's no reason that will turn off. Considerable amount of energy in terms of what's per square meter as well, the most yeah. volcanically active object in our solar system. So if one of two giant planets in our system has has that free source of energy, and if there's more giant planets floating, free floating through space, then maybe that that's a more there's more habitable planets orbiting free-floating stars than there is around solar-type stars. I don't know. Perhaps the, the complex tidal interaction between the moons of those two gravitationally bound jumbos floating around in the Orion Nebula. Well, nebula. Yeah. Who knows, yeah. right? <laughs> the interior is being pulled and flexed from, from one, one planet to the other. Yeah, and I really hate to be the one to talk about this, but these they could have com- complex moon systems around them, right? They, these are free-floating giant planets... Exactly like you said, Hugh, the Jupiter is a great example of this. If it formed especially by this gravitational instability like a star does, we would expect that it would also form a disk around it because that gravitational in, uh, contraction causes the spin-up of the, of the object. So that spinning up causes the material to fan out into a disk. And you would then expect the same kind of processes to occur within that disk forming moons around it. So you might have these kind of dual free-floating planetary mass objects, Jupiter-sized objects, which then have around them lunar-sized objects in the Galilean satellites, which which then are their own systems in their own right. So are they moons then? Or are those planets? Because they're orbiting a body in the middle and have you got then a dual planet system orbiting each other where you've then got these moons orbiting those? And and I think that that's something that we need to question and we need to understand what is the observing limit of that? What what would be the observing limit? We would never expect to see something like the Galilean satellites around Jupiter. But as you've said, Io is heated and that heating causes a lot of gases and because it's also within Jupiter's magnetic field those go down and cause aurora would we looking at these objects be able to see footprints of moons in their magnetic aurora and how can we kind of start really piecing together our our understanding of planet formation in this way by using the entire spectrum and, and really kind of looking at those possibilities I mean, I guess the problem is, as Andrew mentioned, is, is a bit a bit of the bias that we have, right? Because we're able to find these so rarely. We can find them when they're in the galactic plane and they happen to pass in front of a distant star and they've caused this gravitational effect. But those are killer parsecs away. There's there's no hope that we'll ever be able to point a radio telescope and figure out what's going on there. And we can find them when they're in young clusters because they're hot. But 10 million years or 100 million years after they formed... They are undetectable. Even if there was a free-floating planet, I don't know, like halfway between here and Proxima, we would never find it. They're so faint. And so I don't know if, if even if they were these great uh, locations for habitability, 
we wouldn't know about it. We would never be able to really observe that, which is a weird thing to think about. <laughs> mm. Quite distressing. I'm confident there'll be another another technique that someone smart will come up with um, to help us to better characterize the distribution of these objects in our in our galaxy. I'm not sure what it will look like now, but you'd you'd hope that this this can't be just left. They can't just be billions of these objects floating around out there without us being able to to, to peer into them a little bit. I guess anything at 300 Kelvin, it might be glowing enough, right? If if there's any habitable surface out there like the Earth, then it's it's going to be glowing at 300 Kelvin. So maybe we can detect that the tidal heating, whatever it is. But. I mean that that comes into the the question of it would need to be nearby. So we really still are characterizing, even with these new discoveries that are being made. Orion is our nearest and largest star-forming region. It, it is in galactic scales next door. We are only able to discover and understand things that are right in our neighborhood. And there's a whole host of questions that we have to ask when looking at countering these observational biases. We can counter the observational biases if we know what they are. It's the unknown ones that we can't counter, right? Is there a specific location in our galaxy that matters? Are we in that happy sweet spot where we're seeing this population of planets and we can't extrapolate it out to the 400 million billion stars that there, that exist because those stars are in different situations. Those stars exist in environments that are just not a good place to be. They're, they're under huge amount of radiation from the central black hole, for example, or they're so far out from the galaxy that there's absolutely very little UV radiation to ignite certain processes that is needed. There is this question of that galactic archaeology as well when it comes to thinking about planets and the prevalence of them, and that is with or without a star associated with it. Yeah, the galactic habitable zone has been a concept uh, for a little while. Very difficult, as you say, Hannah, to define. Uh, and it might be very heterogeneous in a, in a galaxy, even that's somewhat quite homogeneous like ours. But I guess the argument was that, as you say, there might be one too many violent astrophysical phenomena going on in the centre of the galaxy. Maybe not enough heavy stuff to make planets further out. But again, maybe this just throws that whole concept out the window a little bit. I mean, I think Kepler... 444 was that the really ancient system the like 11.2 billion year old system right that proved that maybe it's not that difficult to form planets actually early on uh, even you know maybe just two billion years after the beginning of the of the of the galaxy so maybe we need to yeah reconsider our our understanding of the distribution of these planet object forming areas <laughs> I can't want to say star forming areas anymore right uh, in in the galaxy might be completely different places for all we know and I'm going to say the same thing that I'll, I'll say every single time. I think we need more data. Mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's our tagline. <laughs> <laughs> Should we go back to the title of this podcast, right? Do all planets orbit stars, Hannah? No, I don't think they do. Andrew? I'm going to say no as well. I'm going to say yes. I think <laughs> things, things that... Things that don't orbit stars are very interesting, and they might be, we could call them free-floating planets, but I'm not sure we can call them classical planets. But that's fine. That doesn't mean that they're, they're, less, they're lesser. Just different. Interesting. I didn't feel like the interest in the fact that they're lesser was so inherently tied to their naming convention, but... <laughs> I think uh, here you made a good argument that's, you know, a, a, a spectrum of processes all operating, well, operating at different scales, scale invariant, right? So we're seeing the same, the same processes happening at these different scales. And as Hannah might say, you know, say, we, 
do we do we call in the, the moons that might be orbiting these objects? Do, do they get a special name as well? But really, at the end of the day, it is just the same processes happening at these different scales. So I don't really want to start separating them. It's a very human thing to want to do, to categorize and, and, and catalog. But I think we're just applying arbitrary boundaries here at some point. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I think so. And, and, and there's the other question. I mean, we've seen brown dwarfs orbiting stars exactly. as well. Are they then yeah. planets? That, but that's like number two on the list of things that are a planet, right? Is like not burning hydrogen. Well, they don't burn hydrogen. They burn deuterium. Or deuterium. Vapor. That's very different. Um, deuterium and, is hydrogen with an extra neutron. Yeah, but that changes the the <laughs> energy that is required for the nuclear yes. synthesis. So the energy required for nuclear synthesis of hydrogen is much, much higher. And therefore, it is a different process in essentially in its entirety as well, in what can be formed from it and how long it lasts. So they are very different. And I'll, I'll grab us a stellar physicist who will yell at us for a while about that. You wouldn't argue a helium burning star is different from a hydrogen core star. I, I think that, that they're still, yeah. We're just diving into that whole argument. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very human thing to, to have a word and to try and attach it to a group of things and not to other things and i think that's stupid and i i kind of agree but we have this word for planet and at least personally what i feel like it attached to is things that orbit stars and that's just a personal thing yeah. i'm not trying to uh, push that on anyone else really because i know how silly it is this whole etymology game right but i i think it comes down to one we can very happily agree to disagree and that's not a problem because it doesn't change the nature of the objects that we're studying and trying to understand and the questions that we're asking do not change by changing the word associated with that that object. So fundamentally, like you said, it's a human thing to put a label on it. And I don't think that that matters. What we want to understand is how did all of this get there? What is that spectrum of worlds and what does it mean? What is the easiest thing to do? Is it easier to form a planet without a star? Is it more likely that we'll have really, really tiny rocks that have been flown out into space during the planet formation process originally around a star? And these are questions that we're trying to answer across the stuff that Hugh does with the demographics, really looking across a whole population of worlds, what can exist, the stuff that I'm doing, looking at the atmospheres and trying to understand how can we tie the things that we're able to measure back to those formation locations and the stuff that Andrew does, understanding the habitability of different worlds and asking the question, what is required for the aspect of habitability? So it really is, it is a big, broad question. Do all planets orbit stars and whatever the answer is like you said Hugh there's an interesting direction that we need to go with that a good place to end it I think Hannah a nice summary can the names that we give these objects reflect something about their formation about their mechanism that might make things a little bit clearer in future well, like I said, I think that's a good place to end things. Um, a nice summary from Hannah there. Please don't forget to look out for our other news episode this month, which will be uh, out imminently. And always let us know what you think about the show through Twitter at, or X now I think it is, right? At XO underscore cast or other social media accounts. I think we've got a Mastodon now as well and a Blue Sky. Um, we're going out there on the social media where we can, but I think probably our website or the place that you normally get your podcasts are the, 
the best place to go for previous shows. Um, you can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Exocast. Each coffee is just $4 and every donation over 15 bucks will get you a shout out on the show. Um, last month we had donations from uh, Bernard Hennen and Ray Stevenson. So thank you very much guys for your uh, donations to keep the, the show going. R- really appreciate it. Um, you can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers and more over at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, Kelp's Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, Lecturer in Astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Andrew Rushby, Lecturer in Astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your donations. Find more on exocast.org. Exocast.